you will join me in Luke chapter 20. We continue in our series through the gospel of Luke. This morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 19. Luke chapter 20. The title of our sermon this morning is Resisting the Messengers. And our keywords for our worshipers in training are tenant, kingdom, and stone. One night in 2004, when I was in the military, I was in Afghanistan on a mission with my unit, and we were raiding a compound of a target that we've been looking at for quite some time. And on a ground raid, there's a standard procedure that when you approach your target, as soon as you get there, everyone gets off the vehicle and immediately you take position to provide security for the initial breach on the target. So we pulled up to our objective. We got off the vehicle. Everyone begins to get their bearings and provide security. But at one point I looked over and I saw someone standing up in the middle of everything, just standing there. No weapon at the ready. He wasn't behind a vehicle. He was just standing there. So I tapped my buddy next to me on the shoulder. I was attached to his team, and I pointed to this guy. It was was pitch black out. All we could see was green under night vision. And we looked over and saw the silhouette of this man just standing there. So we both assumed it was a new guy who's obviously clueless. He needed some direction. Now remember, it's pitch black. So my buddy next to me stands up. He runs over to this guy. He grabs him by the collar, turns him around, and pulls him into his face. And he says, what's your name, Ranger? And this guy says, my name is General McChrystal, Ranger. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) General Stanley McChrystal was at the time the lead commander of special operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. So what do you do when you make the single largest mistake in your entire military career? He let go immediately, pat him on the back and said, great, sir, just checking to make sure you've got what you need. And he ran back to his place and hoped he would never hear another word about it. But what's the difference here? What difference did it make between a young ranger getting some corrective discipline in the middle of a combat objective and a man being told that he's allowed to do whatever he wants? Of course, it's authority. General McChrystal was the man with the authority, the highest ranking man from the U.S. military in the country at that time. So if he felt like it, he could have walked up to the objective and knocked on the door himself to say hello. You see, this is a lesson we all learn in life, the importance of identifying who's in authority. If we don't understand this basic fundamental concept in life, we generally aren't able to hold jobs very long. We're not able to receive the respect that we hope to receive. Authority is important. Knowing who authorities are in our lives and submitting to them properly. We all know those who haven't learned this lesson and the many times that they have failed because of it. 
And the passage we're looking at today reminds me of this time in my life when we got a good laugh at my friend's encounter with the general. A group of chief priests and scribes with the elders come to Jesus to determine supposedly where his authority comes from. Who are you and what gives you the right to do what you're doing right now? And in Jesus' response, we're going to hear some fighting words, some words that will enrage the religious leaders to even more fervently pursue Jesus in death. So let's read about this very tense situation in this final week of Jesus' life, beginning in Luke chapter 20 and verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, and I just want to note, this is the first time in Luke where he says that Jesus was preaching the gospel. He's preaching about himself, in other words. The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all of the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The final week of Jesus' life as he moves toward his inevitable death upon the cross, he has two back-to-back incidents in which he displays his authority. Remember two weeks ago we looked at Jesus riding into Jerusalem from Bethany on the back of of a young baby donkey. He was fulfilling prophecy as all of the people were running out to see him and to laud him as king as he rode into Jerusalem. And as he came down the mountain, he looked out and he saw the city of Jerusalem and he began to weep and he cried out with agonizing prophetic words that that very city, Jerusalem, would soon be destroyed by her enemies because of her unwillingness to receive her Messiah. Then last week, we saw Jesus entering into the temple, into the court of Gentiles. It was being defiled by corrupt usage from money changers and sellers who were in the temple. And Jesus drove them out and turned over their tables, declaring that his house was not to be a den of robbers, but a house of prayer for all peoples, including the very Gentiles that the Jews were seeking to crowd out. Of worship, So Jesus has shown himself to be the perfect prophet and the perfect priest and the perfect king. And remember what Luke told us at the end of last week's passage in verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple. And here we see that very thing. As we look at this text, it was most likely the next day, and Jesus is there again preaching, preaching the gospel. So as we come to this text this morning, we need to remember the context of what's going on in this final week of Jesus' life. It would be an absolute understatement to say that the tension was thick. 
politically and socially. Jesus was headed straight into confrontation, and he knew it. He knew it. It was purposeful. It was timed perfectly. It was all that on Passover, the perfect spotless lamb would be slaughtered for the once for all redemption of his people in fulfillment of all that the father had sent him to do. So Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching the people and they're hanging on his every word. And in the midst of his teaching, these religious leaders confront him with a question that was clearly intended to trip him up. A question that was intended to give them cause to kill him. They think they're clever and they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? Well, there hasn't really been any secrets about Jesus' authority throughout the Gospel of Luke, have there? Let me refresh your memory. In Luke chapter 3, remember the people are making note of the authority of Jesus' words as he preaches. They've never heard someone preach with such authority. Also in Luke 3, the people said, For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus healed a man. And, say, and, and, and Luke tells us he did it, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth and forgives sins. He said it himself. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus gave authority to the twelve uh, disciples to cast out demons and to cure diseases. But in order to give authority, one must have authority. Again, in sending out the 72, Jesus said, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. So there's no question about these things. As Jesus is healing people and casting out demons, raising dead to life, taking authority over weather patterns, now he's receiving the praise of the king. He's cleansing his temple And all of the religious leaders look at all of this and come to him and say, who do you think you are? It's a trap. And they think they have Jesus' back against the wall. But Jesus, in all of his wisdom, responds in a way that confounds and silences them. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it with one another. If we say it's from heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? If we say it's from man, everyone around us is going to stone us to death because they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know. And Jesus said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now notice, Jesus doesn't deny his authority. He simply shuts their mouths. He answered a group of fools according to their folly to reveal to them very clearly that they are not as wise as they think themselves to be in their own eyes. You see, the problem for the religious leaders was not... Was, was that John the Baptist was a very popular hero to the people. They, they loved John. A huge amount of people who were there would have been uh, previously baptized by John. The baptism of repentance as they confessed their sin. 
Ah, but the religious leaders, remember, they refused the baptism of John. In Luke chapter 7, remember, Luke told us the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So they knew right away that it wouldn't end well for them to deny John's authority was from heaven because they didn't want to get stoned to death in the court of the Gentiles by the people who surrounded them. However, if they went ahead and said that John's authority was from heaven, they would out themselves. And no good religious leader is going to do that, right? They would have been admitting that they sinned in rejecting the baptism of John. Even worse, they'd give validity to John's claims, which included, remember in Luke chapter 3, that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They obviously were not going to give credit to Jesus for his messianic authority. There was no way they were going to see him as the Messiah. So they chose instead to respond as liars and cowards and said, we don't know. But consider this. If they really thought Jesus wasn't the real deal, Did they not, as religious leaders of the day, have the duty? Did they not have the obligation to warn the people, to protect them from this man? Regardless of the personal cost, should they not have stood to say, this man is a fraud? But you see, they weren't really concerned in the end with who Jesus truly was. And if he was the Messiah... It didn't matter to them because whatever was going on was threatening their authority and they would not have it. And so they stand in the temple courts and gentle Jesus, meek and mild, says, you won't answer my question, I won't answer yours. Two can play at this game. Brothers and sisters, I'm not exaggerating when I say that these are some of the most in-your-face confrontational fighting words that we see from Jesus. It's as if Jesus is poking them in the chest and he's saying, what are you going to do about it? He's backing down the playground bullies and they're brought to absolute silence. However, Jesus went on. He was just getting started. Let's look at verse 9. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
Now, we know from the Bible that the nature of the human heart is that we're not simply indifferent to God or that we don't just not like him all that much. But the Bible tells us a lot about ourselves. And the main thing we learn in the Bible about ourselves is that our hearts are filled with hatred. They're filled with an anger, a contempt for God. The Bible even tells us that we won't admit that that is the truth of what we think about God. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Also in Romans 1, we're told that we know God profoundly, and yet we suppress, we press down that truth in unrighteousness. We refuse to acknowledge God as God. So what's Paul saying? What's the Bible teaching us? It's this. In our deceptive, God-rejecting hearts, real hatred hides itself so it can do its work without obstruction. There's a contempt towards God, and we don't want to admit it. And as a result, our lives are dramatically affected. And in so many ways, that's what's going on in this parable. I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson preach on this passage, and he said, it's scarcely a parable. Parables were generally told in a way that was not clear. The meaning was a bit veiled. It took some time and thought and explanation, but not this one. It's clear what Jesus is doing here. And here's the deal with this. I'm, gonna, I'm going to tell you the end of the story up front, so I'm sorry. There's a real strong irony here in this moment. Because Jesus tells this parable about the people who are standing right in front of him. And they get angry that he's telling this parable about them. And what do they, what do, they do? What do they want to do to him? They want to kill him. So you you see what I mean about suppressing the truth, affecting our life? The fact of your anger toward God is seen in how incredibly angry and irritated you get when someone tries to tell you that this is the case. Have you ever told someone who's not in Christ that unless they repent and turn to Christ that they're going to hell? Is that generally met with them saying, thank you? Have you ever told someone locked in a false religion that they don't actually love God, but they hate him? Is that generally received with joy? Have you ever told someone who's depending on their own personal works to get them into heaven that they think they're a good person? Have you ever told them that their, their works aren't actually good and it doesn't matter if they're good or even really good because God's standard is perfect? Do they generally nod their head in agreement with you? Probably not. When we, like Jesus, stand and tell people, you are angry at God, you hate God, especially in our southern American culture, you say you serve God, but you're religious people and you hate him. What's the reaction? What about you? What's your reaction? How do you react to this parable? How do you react to this message that apart from a soul-transforming work of God, you actually hate and despise and reject him with all that's in you? 
because you're your own God. Friend, if you're hearing this today and you know you're not a Christian, will you repent of your hatred of God? Will you acknowledge and repent of your sin and turn to Jesus with trust and faith and receive full forgiveness and cleansing from your sin? A full assurance of your eternal hope and rest with Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is gracious. He is merciful. And he is a loving Savior. And I commend him to you this morning. And I'm begging of you to hear what he has to say to you this morning, lest you find yourself in the place of these wicked religious leaders. Let's consider Jesus' parable here. The first person we meet in verse 9 is the vineyard owner. The vineyard owner is clearly representing God in this parable. So this owner buys and plants a vineyard and he leaves town. And when he leaves town, he hires tenants to work the vineyard in his absence. Who is the vineyard? It is Israel. It was very common in the Old Testament for the prophets to call Israel God's vineyard. God had given Israel many things. God had given them their homeland. He had given them the law. He had given them the word. God had given them the temple. And he established for himself a nation of people, his people. He called them out from among all of the other peoples to watch over them. And among them, he called out another group, those who were to perform the temple duties, to be the righteous mediators between the people and God, to offer sacrifices, and to provide all that was needed in mercy and compassion. They were to tend to God's vineyard. So the vineyard owner, God, has planted his vineyard, Israel, and he has set tenants, the religious leaders, over the vineyard. In verse 9, Jesus said that the owner was gone for a long while. And the longer the owner was gone, the more powerless he seemed to the tenants. The more comfortable they got, the more they assumed his absence was permanent. The more they decided they were going to take over and do whatever they pleased. And an abusive attitude swelled up in their hearts and they began to think of the vineyard as their own possession. There was no other owner. It was them and they were going to do what they wanted for their own benefit, for their own profitable gain. But how does it work? Well, the owner takes the risk. He buys the land. He plants the land and he did it with his own money. So the tenants would get their pay, but they were not authorized to do what they pleased. They didn't have that authority. There's that word again. They were supposed to tend the vineyard in the way that the owner wanted them to tend the vineyard. It was for his profit, not for theirs. And if he's paying them a fair wage, they get their pay, but he gets the profit. But these tenants began to act like owners. They will not listen to the messengers. They are resisting the messengers. Well, who are they? Well, it's the prophets. 
Remember back in Luke 13, Jesus was once again rebuking the Pharisees. He's done a lot of that through Luke. And they're trying to trick him to leave. Remember, they wanted him to go away. And they said, they lied to him. They said, Herod wants to kill you. You should go somewhere else. Go far away. And he responds very sarcastically. He says, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. It was Jesus' statement of sarcasm and biting truth and prophetic insight. He was condemning them with his words. You've killed all of the messengers that God has sent. And that's what Jesus is presenting in his parable here, right? The tenants will not tend to the owner's word. They are acting like owners themselves. They're resisting all of the messengers who come in. They're beating them. They're sending them away empty-handed. We see this three times in the parable. In Acts chapter 7, just before Stephen was stoned at the feet of Saul, he shouted at the Sanhedrin, you stiff-necked People, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Your, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And then they killed him. We know from our Old Testament that this very thing is true, right? In 1 Kings 19, Elijah was driven into the wilderness. Second Chronicles 24, Zechariah was stoned to death near the altar. According to tradition, the prophet Isaiah was sawn in half. We learned earlier in the Gospel of Luke that John the Baptist was beheaded. The writer of Hebrews takes note of all of this when he writes, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So Jesus is illustrating in his parable that all of this was done because the leaders of Israel had become so powerful, so high on their horse, so fat from the fruit of the vineyard, because they wanted to keep it all for themselves. And so they drove away the prophets. The prophets were an incredible threat to them because if they heard what the prophets had to say, they would be humble servants of the people. So they beat them. Many of them they killed, and they drove them away completely. Now, before we press on in this parable, I want for us to think for a moment about an important implication here for us. How does this apply to our lives? Remember, we talked earlier about the nature of the human heart to oppose God. That is our natural inclination in our hearts, to think of ourselves as the owner of whatever we have as opposed to being tenants or stewards of what we have. Here's the deal. If we're honest, we have to admit that more often than not, we act like owners instead of tenants, don't we? Consider your life. Consider your mind, your thoughts. This isn't something we like to dwell on too much because it's crushing. Your mind is not your own. You don't have the authority to do with it as you please. 
You're not authorized to just believe whatever you want to believe. You can't just dwell on whatever thoughts you want to dwell on. You can't just use it any way you want. Surely you can, but it has consequences. And God has endued all of us with a certain amount of power and possessions, privilege. We have a certain amount of money. We, we can't simply do with all that we have whatever we want to do. Now, I know all of the world and all of the self-help books tell you that nobody can decide what's for you. You just have to do what's best for you. You have to decide your own values. Your truth is yours and mine is mine. But that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is telling us. That's exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches us. The human heart's tendency is to believe that if you're successful, it's because of your superiority. I did it. I'm a tenant acting like an owner. You see it in children all the time, right? I don't need your help. They say it almost as soon as they can talk. I don't need your help. I can do it myself. Yes, but what you're about to do is going to result in serious injury or possibly death. (laughs) But what is that? What do we say? We chalk that up to children. Lack of perspective, right? But the Bible says there's something even deeper going on. Because they're just illustrating for us what's going on in our own hearts. That we live in the illusion of independence and self-sufficiency. But you know what? Being a Christian is saying, wow, I'm really helpless and messed up and broken and I can't do anything on my own. I need to depend completely on another because I am not my own. And if I was my own, I would be a total failure. We don't want to see it and most of the time we don't want to believe it. But how does that work out for us? Not too well, right? But God has made a way, hasn't he? He loves his children. He provides for his children. Even when we're screwed up and hateful and spiteful and disobedient, he still loves us. So what did he do? What does the parable tell us he did? He sent his son. And what happens with that? Look again at the parable, verse 13. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. God the Father sent Jesus the Son to rescue his vineyard from the wicked tenants And what did they do? They threw him out of the vineyard and they murdered him. That's what happened, right? That's what's about to happen in Jesus' future. A few days later, they take Jesus outside of the city gates and they hang him on a cross to die so that all the inheritance could be theirs. So they could be the prophets and priests and kings. Brothers and sisters, so that we could be prophets and priests and kings. 
The self-serving, self-sufficient pride of the heart, which drives us to act like owners instead of tenants, led to the most horrific sin in the history of mankind, the murder of the only righteous, sinless man to walk on earth, the God-man Jesus Christ. This parable from the mouth of Jesus was a a death parable. It was Jesus' prophetic autobiography. These are the temple's words spoken in the temple. Brothers and sisters, friends, I want you to know this. I want you to see this above everything. The parable Jesus told, it is such a rebuke for those standing in front of him. It's such a rebuke for all who reject him. But this parable is rooted in God's love. In the face of the hard-heartedness of Israel, of all that they did to Jesus, he keeps pushing, he keeps pursuing, he keeps insisting. And after all that God had sent them through the prophets, they drove them away, they ignored them, they abused them, they killed them, but God kept after his people. And then he sent his son. Martin Luther said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. But do you see God's love for his people? Do you see God's love for you? My friends, we are a people of broken lives and darkened hearts, but our father has such a love for us. He didn't turn his back on us. He hasn't turned his back on the world. God continued to send servant after servant after servant. Rejection, insult, beating, murder. It didn't stop God. And so finally he sends his son. And Charles Spurgeon said of the son of God, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. What a savior we have in Jesus Christ. What a king we have in Jesus Christ. What a Lord we have in Jesus Christ. What a friend we have in Jesus Christ. No greater love can be shown from a man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, that he laid down his life for you and for me. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Look at verse 16. The end of 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. As we consider the death of Christ and think of the cross of Jesus, what do we see? 
There's nothing on that cross but Jesus. And that's the point. God has gone to great lengths to make us right with him, even though we were his enemies and wouldn't even admit it. He made Jesus the enmity. Jesus the one, it was the one who had all the authority, and yet Jesus was the one who legally became the enmity. God reconciles us to himself on the cross. How? He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus paid our sin debt so that God the Holy Spirit could come and open our eyes and show us our enmity. And see, if you don't admit you're an enemy, you will stay an enemy. And what does Jesus say will happen in verse 18? You will be crushed by the stone. And if you admit you're an enemy, you will no longer be an enemy. The stone will be a building stone. You will build your life upon this cornerstone. Instead of being crushed by it, you will build upon it. But if you reject it, if you stay an enemy, you will be brought to ruin. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground. Either you build your life on the stone, though we deserve to be treated like enemies, Jesus was treated like an enemy for me. He was slain. Or else you reject that and you stay an enemy. So here's the immediate context of this. Jesus is telling the people in front of him that God is going to judge Israel and her unrighteousness. Evil leaders have rejected the authority of the owner of the vineyard. And what will he do? Verse 16 says, he will give the vineyard to others. Who's that? To Israel's enemies. It's once again Jesus' prophetic word of the kingdom of God, not simply made up of the Jewish people, but of the Gentiles as well. Every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And the people were so shocked by all of this, they said in verse 16, surely not. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. There was no way that was going to happen. But I I love what he writes in verse 17. He looked directly at them. It's powerful. They got the stern look of Jesus and he gave them the news. If you reject me and my authority, you will be crushed. And did the religious leaders get the point? (laughs) They got it loud and clear. They sought to lay hands on him that very hour. Why? because they knew he was talking about them. But they wouldn't do it because they were afraid of man. Pretty sharp group, aren't they? They would be crushed, but they didn't want to admit it. They didn't want to acknowledge it because they were tenants acting like owners and they wouldn't give it up. But friends, if you are not right with God, if you're not resting in and trusting Christ This does not have to be true for you. This will wake anybody up from the sleep of denial. Jesus Christ was willing to die for you. He was willing to become an enemy and to be treated like an enemy for you. How can it be dangerous to give control of your life to somebody like that? It can't be. 
Wake up out of the sleep of denial. He became enmity on your behalf. He was slain. He was crushed on the cross so that instead of enemies, we could be his friends. Don't reject the messengers. Listen to the messengers and lay down this notion that you have authority in your own life. You don't have any at all. It's a mirage. Run to Jesus. Receive Jesus gladly. Gladly. Gladly.